Let's join together for prayer. What an important question. And thank you that it is John the Baptist was asking that question. He got a great answer. A great answer that will help each one of us as we look to what's going on in the world, in our world. Sometimes it's confusing. Sometimes it's disheartening, disillusioning. Sometimes it's worrisome if we would allow it to be. But thank you that we always can fall back on who is he. Because who he is ministers to us, lifts us up, builds us up, encourages us. So we pray that each one of us would be able to come to grips once again with who the Lord Jesus is, and we would be able to do it through your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing our study in Matthew chapter 11, and today the 19 verses center around a person, a person by the name of John the Baptist, as we refer to him. In just a few moments, we'll be reading this in sections. But let me remind you of a few things in advance of that. We've already met John the Baptist in our study of Matthew. It was over two years ago, I will admit. It was back in Matthew chapter 3. We also learned about him from the other Gospels as we've gone through them over the years. And all of us accumulated knowledge over the years about John the Baptist. So I believe that he's very familiar to most of us. Last time we saw John, though, it was in Luke, and uh, John was in jail. He was in jail because he offended Herodias, the wife of King Herod. He took a moral stand on something that the two of them had done wrongly and ended up in jail and ended up in a situation that would take his life eventually. In our previous Matthew study, very recently, I shared the idea that John the Baptist was a great example for us as Christians to follow. Now think about this. Think about anybody who lives this better than John the Baptist did. For to me to live is Christ. That's all he wanted to do is to see the Lord Jesus Christ honored. It's that same John the Baptist who said in Matthew chapter 3, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The same John the Baptist that said in John chapter 3, verse 30, He must increase, but I must decrease. What a great example to each one of us. He must increase, but I must decrease. So he's the one who very famously said, and this is a paraphrase, but he said, it's not about me. Most people wouldn't say that today. If you look around our world, look around the people, even those who name the name of the Lord Jesus, usually it's about us, ourselves, not for John the Baptist. It was all about the Lord Jesus. I'm not trying to be critical of this, but there's, there, there's a bumper sticker that I think could be worded a little bit better, the one that says, God is my co-pilot. Do you think John the Baptist would have said that? I think he would have said, God is my co-pilot. I don't think he would have said, God is my co-pilot. I think he would have said, if you take that metaphor and involve that in, a, in an automobile, he would say, I don't see me driving and God in the passenger seat um, or, or the Lord Jesus doing that. I, I would see the Lord Jesus driving, and I'm not even worthy to be in the passenger seat. 
uh, let me be a floor mat in that car, or let me, let me be there, or in the trunk, or something like that, or take the metaphor to a plane and the co-pilot. I don't believe John the Baptist would say, I'm going to fly the plane, and I want my co-pilot to be Jesus. I, I think he would say, Jesus, you fly the plane. I'm very content to be in the baggage. Uh, that's the kind of man he was, and what a great example for a Christian to be. He must increase, I must decrease. That was his whole attitude all the time. Now, according to verse 1 in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus had just finished instructing his 12 disciples, and he was going to preach in the cities, same cities that are identified as their cities. He was going to be able to do that. John at this time was still in prison, very harsh prison, something puzzling is about to happen to John. Let's see what that is. Something so puzzling, he felt the need to do something. I'm going to use a bad word here. He felt he had to do some homework. Sorry, I had to use that. But he had to do some homework, and let's see what it is. John's investigation. We'll read the first six verses. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, that is, the Messiah, the Anointed One, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered him, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So here's John in prison. Jesus involved now in ministry, doing all kinds of great things. But according to Luke's account, John's own disciples are the ones who reported to John everything that was going on with the Lord Jesus. So there he is in prison, but he knows what's going on. He knows what's happening, what Jesus is doing. His own disciples are coming and telling him what's going on. So John was led to conduct some type of an investigation at that point. He sent, according to Luke, two of his disciples to question the Lord Jesus. At John's instigation, they wanted to know if he was the prophesied Messiah. Are you the Christ? Or should we be looking for someone else? Does that surprise you? Surprise me as I'm studying through there. I'm saying, this is John the Baptist. He wants to investigate to see whether Jesus is genuine, if he's the real thing, if he's the one they've been waiting for, if he's the anointed one, if he's the Christ. This is John the Baptist. He already knows. He's already stated it over and over again. Why wasn't John sure at this particular point? Had he forgotten what his mother must have told him if his mother survived long enough? She was old, I know, when John was born, but if she survived long enough, she certainly would have told John the Baptist what happened when Mary came to greet her. Remember what it said there? The baby in her womb leaped for joy when Mary's voice was heard. Certainly he would have been told that, if not by his mother, by somebody else, because that was certainly a special moment in the life of anyone when that were to happen. Not only that, we've got to ask ourselves the question, didn't he remember the voice from heaven identifying Jesus as the Son of God, the Father, by the Father, 
himself. Or wouldn't he have remembered when he pointed himself and said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He seemed pretty certain at those points who Jesus was. And what about the scripture that we read just a few moments ago? And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, why send people to ask if this is the prophesied Messiah or should we be looking for someone else? What happened? You know, we're really not told what was going on with John. We can infer and surmise and guess a little bit. Maybe John never expected to be in prison, but there he was now, and it was an ugly prison. He didn't expect that. We've been talking about persecution recently. To expect it, it will happen. Maybe John didn't realize that. Maybe he thought, I know I'm on the right side. Everything's going to be okay for me now. And here he was in prison. Or maybe he thought that suffering wouldn't be part of the picture if he were on the Son of God's team. I don't have to suffer. I know all of this has been happening. It's culminating right now. It's coming together. Didn't realize that it was going to be a problem. Being in prison could have led to a depression. It's a great spawning area for doubts to get down on oneself and circumstances of life. Maybe it wasn't about him here. Maybe it was about his disciples. I'm going to send these two to investigate what's going on because I know, but they don't. I want them to meet Jesus. I want them to ask Jesus and let him tell them. Maybe we're not told, though. We're not told exactly what is going on here. Maybe he just wanted some reassurance as he sat on death row. Maybe he was acting a little humanly, like many of us would have done. Or maybe, according to Isaiah 61.1, Messiah was supposed to set the prisoners free. Why not set him free? Why hadn't it happened? Maybe you can understand an individual who's thinking through some issues and wondering why life is so hard. Wondering why it is that for a Christian it's not easier. Why do I have difficulties? One commentator speaks in John's defense. He says, John was not the sort of man who vacillated. We'll see that later in the scripture, one verse from where we are right now. He's not like a reed that is blowing in the wind. He's not vacillating back and forth. John was not the sort of man who vacillated. We are not to think that his faith was failing or that he had lost confidence in Christ. But with so many unexpected turns of events, John in prison, Christ encountering unbelief and hostility, John wanted reassurance from Christ himself. That is precisely what Jesus gave him. So regardless of why John was raising these questions, it's significant. There's no hint of anger or disappointment on the part of Jesus toward John. John hadn't done anything wrong. Jesus was not going to tell him, your faith is failing, what happened to you? I gave you all these opportunities to see who I was, and you didn't take advantage of it. And maybe things haven't been going real well for you either. Maybe right now you're in a situation similar to what John the Baptist was. It's not prison, or you wouldn't be here. But maybe there are things that are happening. Maybe it's something that happened when you went to the doctor most recently, and the doctor said, um, this doesn't look good. 
need you to come back next week and we'll get the results of these tests, but uh, be expecting some problems. Maybe that's what it is. But ordinarily, if somebody feels like the world is caving in around them, it's because of a loved one who's experiencing trouble. Maybe that's what's happening. Uh, it could be financial. could be a whole lot of other kinds of things that are going on. But maybe things haven't been going well for you and you simply need a little bit of reassurance. And here's the best reassurance I can see because it's what Jesus gave to John the Baptist through his disciples. Jesus said, everything that has been written about me is true. What you've seen and what you've heard, it's all been recorded. It was prophesied in advance. It's all true. You can count on me. That's the message of reassurance that the Lord Jesus can give to each one of us no matter what it is that we're going through. Look at the truth about me. Focus on that. Meditate on that. And that's going to help to get you through. Now, Jesus at that particular time was right in the middle of curing the physically and spiritually sick. It was very easy for Jesus to simply tell John's emissaries to go back to John and report what they had seen and what they had heard. He was right in the middle of the battle, and he says, you want to talk about the war? Watch me, and then go back and tell John everything that is happening. What was it that they had witnessed? I like the way that Luke puts it in Luke 7, verse 21. In that hour, he, Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. The NIV says, many who had diseases and sicknesses. Now, between the two translations, the ESV and the NIV, there are uh, words diseases and plagues or sicknesses. There are actually two different words in the Greek language. One of them is severe, people who were severely ill. And the next word is worse. They were very much severely afflicted. But the uh, good news is that Jesus took care of all of them. That's what it tells us here in verse 4, chapter 11 in front of us. The blind received sight. The lame walked. Those who had leprosy were cured. The deaf were now able to hear. The dead were raised. We can think of a couple of incidents where that happened. This seems to say that it was happening a lot more, just not recorded The dead were raised. The good news was preached to the poor. That's very significant. Others would have ignored the poor, but not Jesus. There's something else that's very significant about this. All of it was recorded in advance, what Jesus would do. And so Jesus is basically saying, give some reassurance to John. Go back to him and tell him exactly what you're seeing. That in and of itself says something but it also reminds exactly of what was prophesied, particularly in the book of Isaiah. He says, look who I am and look at God's word and you're going to get your reassurance. Isaiah chapter 26, 19. I'm going to list four scriptures from Isaiah. I'm going to have them on the screen. There are many others that I could point to. But imagine if you need reassurance. It's no farther away than God's word. It wasn't for John the Baptist because everything that Jesus was doing was pre-recorded. Acts 26, 19. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, that's people who are dead, awake and sing for joy 
For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Isaiah 29, 18. Written hundreds of years before, could have been written days before or hours before. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Or the famous prophecy from Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Remember when Jesus actually said those words. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And then it was at that point that Jesus gave us the only hint we have as to John's state of mind that prompted his questions. These were the words of reassurance that Jesus gave in chapter 11, verse 6. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. New International says, does not fall away on account of me. Blessed is the one who doesn't give up. We've got a situation here where some of the study notes in some of our study Bibles and some of the commentators consider this a mild rebuke coming from Jesus. I don't see it that way at all. I don't think there's any kind of a rebuke going on here. I look at it as a reassurance. Jesus is telling John, hang in there. He's telling him not to give up the ship. He wants him to know the reward and the blessing ahead for the one who perseveres, who doesn't allow the circumstances to overwhelm him. I don't think Jesus is scolding him. I think he's saying to him, hang in there. It's going to be okay. That's what verse 6 is really all about. Verse 6 telling him, blessed is the one. The reward is coming to somebody who is not going to give up, somebody who is not going to give in to the discouragement. I also think that as we go further, we're going to see much of the same thing because Jesus is now about to identify who John the Baptist is before the same crowd that is there. He's going to talk about him. And he's going to talk about him in a great way. Jesus had kind words to say to the crowd about John. Not a hint of condemnation going on here. No sense of impatience toward one who needed some reassurance. Here's what he says about him beginning with verse 7 and then through verse 15. As they went away... Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? And the implication is no, not at all. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. So the implication is again, no, you didn't go to see that kind of a person either. You didn't go to see somebody who was like a reed shaken by the wind or somebody who's dressed like royalty. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. 
From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So the Lord Jesus asking three questions related to one particular question. That one particular question, what did you go out to the wilderness to see? The first possible answer, a reed swayed by the wind. Is that why you went out to the wilderness? All the crowd of people going out to see John the Baptist. Did you want to go out there and see somebody who's vacillating back and forth? That's what it means here, a reed swayed by the wind. Is that what you really went out there to see? This is metaphorical for an easygoing person. That was not John. It would describe a weak person, no convictions, blowing whichever way the wind blew. And so again, the implied answer is no, that's not what you went to see. John was not a wimp. You didn't go out there to see somebody like that. Well, then, who did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Is that what you went out to see? That wouldn't have been John. You find people dressed with expensive clothes and indulging in luxury in palaces, not in the desert. God uses ordinary people. And you know what he wants to use us too? That passage in 1 Corinthians, that not many of us are royalty, not many of us are anything extra special. That's okay because God is, and that's the point that he makes through somebody like John the Baptist. He's almost a spectacle because he is so ordinary and maybe even south of ordinary Well, what does verse 11 mean? Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's pretty hard to understand. He's really praising John the Baptist. Then this word, yet. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What does that mean? Let me share with you what two commentators say. Here's the first one. John was greater than the Old Testament prophets because he actually saw with his eyes and personally participated in the fulfillment of what they only prophesied. But all believers after the cross are greater still because they participate in the full understanding and experience of something John merely foresaw in shadowy form, the actual atoning work of Christ. Another commentator says, The greatness of John the Baptist in the old dispensation of the law before the cross fades in comparison to the high position every believer has had since Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and the descent of the Spirit. Great as John was, it's greater to participate in the kingdom than to merely announce it. So here's a great man. And yet we are privileged to have more than he had because we know the truth of God's word. So if he gets reassurance from the Old Testament scriptures, we get reassurance from the whole Bible telling us everything Jesus did and what Jesus is about to do as well as what he's doing right now in our midst. And if you look at verses 12 through 15 once again, from the time of John's ministry, there was violent opposition. Exhibit A was Herod's imprisonment of John. John will prove to be the last of these prophets representing the Old Covenant. 
But John was not Elijah reincarnated. Some people will teach that, but he disclaimed being Elijah. In John 1.21, he said, no, I am not Elijah. But he went before Christ in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's recorded in Luke 1.17. The spirit and power of Elijah. So that's when we're looking at, at these verses uh, that's what it's all about, talking about the prophets and the law prophesied until John, John the last of them. And if you're willing to accept that he's Elijah who is to come, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's all part of the plan. It's all working out. John is not the reincarnation of Elijah, but he's there in the spirit and power of Elijah. As we look further, there are four more verses here that capture something of what was going on with regard to John the Baptist before Matthew moves on to something different. We're looking at the idea now of Jesus and John's, I'm, I'm going to call it their denigration. And uh, that's a word that you may not be real familiar with. I'll explain that in just a moment. But let's read these last four verses, beginning with verse 16. Jesus still commenting here, is still involved in the praise of John the Baptist, but now his attention shifts a little bit to the audience and he says, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. John, Jesus, their denigration. So for the sake of you that didn't have an education at Darby Collin High School, let me explain that vocabulary word that I had in 10th grade. Denigration synonyms. Disparagement. John and Jesus were being disparaged. Vilification. They were being vilified. Scorned. Belittling, condemnation, unfair criticism. They could do nothing right. John and Jesus did different things. Both of them were criticized. It didn't matter what they had done. The people in general, even the tax collectors, acknowledged that God's way was right. They were actually baptized by John the Baptist, many of them, but not the Pharisees. They couldn't be bothered by the truth. The leaders, the religious leaders, they poisoned some of the people. But remember what was happening with John the Baptist. All of these people were flocking to him. They wanted to be baptized for good reason. You could almost tell the difference, and we'll see that in just a moment, between those who were baptized, those who weren't, and the way they treated the Lord Jesus. I have a picture on the screen that I'll explain. In May 2002, a man by the name of Leonardo Diaz a Colombian hiker decided to do some serious mountain climbing with his friends. Their goal was to reach the summit of what is known as Nevado del Ruiz, a volcano in the Andes. That's what's pictured on the screen. On the second day of the climb, a major blizzard hit. Diaz lost sight of his friends and became separated from them. Although not initially worried, the novice climber soon began to run out of rations and suffer from the bitter cold. Although he had his cell phone, and remember this was 2002, that was, that was a long time ago, but he had a cell phone, 
He had it in his backpack, but his prepaid minutes had already expired. With no way to signal for help, Diaz realized he was not going to make it. As he lay in the frigid snow preparing to die, his cell phone rang. It was a phone solicitor in Bogota wanting to know if Diaz was interested in purchasing more minutes. And you don't like those kind of calls, do you? We get annoyed at them. But in this case, it ended up saving his life. We called him to remind him that his cell phone was out of minutes, said Maria del Pilar Bastos of Bell South. He said it was the work of an angel because he was lost in the Andes. The next time you get a solicitor that calls you, I dare you to say, are you an angel by any chance? Diaz described his location to the caller and asked that his family be notified so they could dispatch a rescue team. The Bell South operators who could tell from the sound of his voice that hypothermia had already begun to set in called him every 30 minutes to keep him awake and to maintain his hope of survival. Seven hours later, rescuers arrived and he was okay. What ordinarily might have been perceived as a nuisance call saved his life. There's a point to that. Until we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we often react to God's call on our heart as though God were an unwanted telemarketer. Many of us would only welcome his call if we're in desperate need. But you know what the Pharisees did? They hung up on him. They hung up on him every time. The regular people responded positively to him, but not the religious leaders. They kept hanging up on the Lord Jesus, treating him as a nuisance, and then worse than that even. They rejected God's purpose for themselves. They showed that because they rejected what John had told them they needed to do as well. Here's, again, uh, speaking from one of my favorite commentators, Kent Hughes. The explicit reason for people's either receiving Jesus' word or rejecting it was whether or not they had been baptized by John. John's baptism had become a spiritual continental divide in Israel. John's baptism required confession and repentance of one's sins, and one's willingness or unwillingness to do so made all the difference. Earlier, Luke wrote of John's ministry. He went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so the Lord Jesus looked around and made an analogy. We just read that analogy a few moments ago. If you want to look back again at verses 16 through 19. The purpose of the analogy was to make the point that neither he nor John could win with the people of his generation, particularly the religious leaders. They would never be pleased. Why? Because they acted like little children. That flute dance and sing a dirge and no crying analogy illustrated that nothing Jesus or John could do was okay with these people. They refused to cooperate with him. If they wouldn't be happy, maybe they'd be sad, but not them. If they couldn't be sad, maybe they would be happy, but they wouldn't be anything. You could play a flute for them, they're not going to dance. You could sing a dirge, they're not going to mourn. No matter what you do, they will not be pleased. That's the point, the whole point that he's making there. John came in one way. It was criticized. Jesus came in another way. 
And they accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but he was not a glutton and a drunkard. He simply was not fasting the way that John came about. And then he says something that may be a little bit hard to understand as he comes to the end of this. He says, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. What he's saying is we couldn't please them. Everything we tried, they disregarded and were critical of. It says in the NIV, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. So wisdom is justified by her deeds or by what it produces, by her children. That's what Jesus is saying. You want to be critical of John the Baptist. You want to be critical of me. Don't be. Because everything that we've been doing can be justified by the fruit of what it is that we're producing. A lot of ways you could say it. True wisdom is vindicated by its consequences, what it produces. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. You could put it that way. Don't judge a book by its cover. This is what he's telling them. Don't be so quick to dismiss Jesus and John and their message because it's by their fruit you will know them. That's what wisdom justified by our deeds or by our children is all about. You keep looking at the Lord Jesus and you will see justification for absolutely everything that goes on. Now let me, let me wind this down and wrap this up a little bit. You're struggling. You're struggling with life. It's a little tougher than you hoped that it would be. It doesn't appear to be getting any better. Some of the folks here are fighting age issues. Well, all of us are fighting age issues, but some are more noticeable. And you realize that uh, this is what I get right now. It's probably not going to get any better. There is no fountain of youth. It's going to get worse and worse. That's the way that it is. So with myself, my family, my loved ones, my circumstances in life, things can be very, very tough. But here's the reassurance that Jesus gave John the Baptist and the same reassurance that is there. He said to him, take me at my word. Look at me. This is what you get. I am the real thing. I am Jesus. It's recorded in the word. It's all over. It predicted what I would be. What do you see when you look at me? You see that anointed one, that Messiah. You see the one who can help and who can give you that reassurance. Normal circumstances of life, sometimes overwhelmingly threatening. Persecution can be paralyzing. Here's a man sitting on death row. Here's a man at the caprice of Herod's wife will ultimately lose his life. And I believe he's got some premonition. He sees that things are not going to end well for him. But Jesus made a convincing case that he is the one. Jesus pointed John to the Old Testament scriptures. He points us to his entire word. He can be trusted. So what do we do when we need reassurance? Make it real simple. Stop, look, and listen. Stop. First of all, stop looking at all of those circumstances and those problems, those ones that you're looking at that are coming up. You think tomorrow it's going to be worse. The next day is going to be worse. What's going to happen in a month? What's going to happen in a year? Stop all of that. Be still and know that he's God. Stop, look. Look at Jesus. He's the real thing. That's what he told John the Baptist. He said to the disciples of John, look, go tell him what you're seeing. That's all we need to do. Stop, look, and listen. What did Jesus say to John's disciples? He said, 
Look and see what I'm doing. Here's what I'm doing. All of it was from God's Word that would be done by the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. Stop, look, listen. It's not wrong to want reassurance. And the Lord Jesus said that so clearly. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who doesn't stumble because he can't make sense of what's going on in life. Blessed is the one instead who will trust that person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop, look, and listen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for John the Baptist. What a righteous man. What a great example for to me to live as Christ was embodied by him. And yet as great a man as he was, the circumstances in his life were not rosy at all. And we can't tell for positively sure, but it appeared as if he needed some reassurance in one way or another. Or he wanted his disciples to be reassured, but the reassurance comes in taking the Lord Jesus for who he is, for trusting that he's the real thing, for trusting your word that tells us that. And we've got much more of it than he did. Thank you that... We don't have to wallow in ignorance or self-pity or worry, but instead we give it all to you. And we trust the Lord Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.